Hello, and welcome to Invisible Not Broken. This week, I had the pleasure of talking with a gentleman who frankly amazes me with how open he is about his daily struggles. He's even gone so far as to share his health struggles in a couple of very moving Facebook Live videos. He'll be talking about what it's like to have severe vasculitis, so much so that his doctor is making him into a case study. And trust me, hearing that no one's ever seen a problem like yours before is not something you want to hear from your doctor. Oh, and I need to apologize in advance. My African gray parrot decided she wanted to be part of the interview as well and made a very loud noise just shy of the 11-minute mark. I planned on removing it in post, but she did it while Robbie was talking. So thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I enjoyed talking to Robbie. Thanks for coming on uh, Invisible Not Broken. Uh, Please introduce yourself and let us know uh, how old you are and what your disorder is. Um, So my name is Robbie Miller. I'm 36 years old. I have two forms of vasculitis, um, Berger's disease and Wagner's granulomas. Okay, can you tell us a little more about those mean? Those are big words. <laughs> sure. Um, so um, any type of vasculitis has to deal with the small blood vessels. Um, my two particular diseases deals with um, the very small blood vessels that run throughout your organs and your eyes, um, and then the other part affects the breathing system, the lungs, and the nasal cavity. Um, in a sense, basically, what happens is your white blood cells attack and start shutting off blood supply to your small blood vessels and okay. restricting them to where they can die. Oh, okay. So you said your white blood cells start taking, so it's an autoimmune disease? Yes. Okay. Um, so how old were you? You said you were 22 when this started? Uh, I was 23 when I was like 23. Okay. Um, how is it, how does it affect your daily life then? So what kinds of, what's your daily life like? So, um, basically with my daily life, it's about filled with a bunch of chronic pain. Um, after those two autoimmune diseases were flared up, a long flared up, um, rheumatoid arthritis, Ouch. So I have joint pain, discomfort, basically just daily life going about it is difficult with the neuropathy from the blood restriction to the hands and the feet, and it's like you're trapped in a shell um, that's painful. So you mean you kind of your body is a shell yeah. you're trapped in? Okay. Um, so... With all this vasculitis that you're talking about, you said that it affects the small blood vessels in your organs. So do you have problems with uh, your organs yeah, not have, working functioning correctly? Right. I have um, a lot of um, organ damage, which I take medications to help those organs basically retain what they would be if I was, quote-unquote, a normal 36-year-old. Um, I take approximately between 30 and 40 different medications. A day? A day. Wow, um, okay, that's a lot. That's not including uh, a pain medication regimen. Okay. Um, when people are um, asking, you know, how can you have pain from this, my doctor at the time best described it as um, when there is a, a real bad flare-up or backup, um, the best way to explain the pain would be taking a cantaloupe and trying to shove it through the blood vessel of the eye. Because what's happening is Ow. the blood is so constricted where the white blood cells 
have attacked that blood vessel, that it trying to push through can be severely painful. Okay, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like so since your blood vessels are so constricted that you have a, a lack of blood supply to things, which causes you know things like your uh, toxins to build up in areas and stuff like this, which yes. is where a lot of your pain probably comes from. Yeah. Yeah, because I have similar things with my feet, so I, I understand that. But mine's, mine's only my feet. I can't imagine having it everywhere like that. Yeah. Um, what would you be doing if this hadn't come up in your life? If, what, where do you think you would be if this had never happened? So if we turn the clock back 14 years, um, at that time in my life, I was um, studying for nursing. Okay. Um, I was also working jobs, and I was taking care of my grandmother. So I have a lot of previous knowledge in geriatric care. So I would say today, if had I had a normal life, um, then I would have been a nurse. Okay. But in a way, um, I was handed a different medical situation where I sort of became my own nurse, oh, nurse. My yeah. Own <laughs> health advocate and things like that. Um, yeah, that's. I mean, I have some medical training myself, so I, I get that that you you end up becoming your own caregiver in a yes. way. Um, what do you think would make moving about in our world in this world that tend to ignore ignore people with disabilities easier for you? Um, I. Your podcast one is a great starting point. However, there are people out there that we live in a society that is everybody wants everything done yesterday. So for me, walking around, you know, it takes a little bit of extra time. Um, people are very impatient. Mm -hmm. I have noticed um, when I received my handicap placard here in California, because I'm originally from Ohio, um, people would actually question why I was taking up a spot for a perfectly normal, you know, yep. handicapped person. And I, it wasn't until like the second or third time I finally got out the paper and said, here's my registration, here's my driver's license, here's my Medi-Cal or my Medicare card. Uh -huh. You can verify this is me. Mm -hmm. For those of you wondering what that loud beep was, that's my parrot. We're doing the interview at my place for a change, and my little uh, African gray parrot's deciding to chime in. So if you hear any more squeaks or, or whistles, it's the parrot being upset that she's being ignored. <laughs> um, so kind of back to this. Uh, sorry for that just little distraction there. Yeah, we've had a lot of people talk about that, that, that you know, people we've interviewed who have the disabled placard that get a lot of flack for it, that get a lot of pushback from people who think, well, you look just fine, which is the kind of the uh, worst thing you can hear as someone with an invisible disability is, well, you look fine. Yeah. Great. I'm glad I, glad I look fine, but I feel miserable. Exactly. And they don't understand this. Um, so, you know, this is a, a fairly, sadly, a fairly common thing we've run across as we've gotten deeper and deeper into this, that people with invisible disabilities get a lot of pushback from people that, well, you look fine. But you're not. No, and I also ran into an issue when I was flying an airline. Um, I always have to take a medical bag that's full of my prescriptions mm -hmm. wherever I'm traveling because right. I never know if I'm going to be there a week or longer. Well, and, you know, I know 
me personally, I, t- I always take my medicines on plane because I don't want to take a chance that it, it's in the packed luggage that gets right. lost. So I, I, I get that. Anyway, continue. Well, so I was um, getting ready to board this airline, and the agent said, you have three bags. You're only allowed carrying on two. And I went on to explain that one is for medical. And mm-hmm. she put me in a position that was really difficult because I know the FAA regulations because mm-hmm. I had studied them. And she made me open up the bag and explain my medications. Really? Um, the type of medications I was taking. That um, seems like an invasion of privacy. That For me, I felt like it was, but it was an emergency case where I needed to take this flight. And... I felt as though she could have set me up had because I was in a line of people and had they heard some of the medications I'm on, yeah, some of those you know have a street value, and some people aren't worried about what they have to do to an individual to get that right. She put you in danger by having yeah. that all announced like that, and I contacted their h r department with every information I had. And it was forwarded to um, the co-CEO of the airline. Uh-huh. And the only thing they offered me was a $100 you know, gift, <laughs> gift card. card or, or like a voucher. And yeah. I'm like, no, for me, that wasn't good enough. Um, and since then, I've switched airlines. And Makes sense. I've never had an occurrence with the new airline I fly. That's um, I don't fine. know if you can give out names because of purposes. That's why I'm. Being yeah, vague. I understand being vague. It's we've not gotten big enough yet to have that be an issue, but I think it's good caution yeah. to have. Um, yeah, that's horrible. Yeah. So and, you know, basically, if you are flying with medications or um, a CPAP, you just tell them that you know it's medical based. Um, however, a flight that I was on recently, the woman said when you check in with a CPAP, don't say it's an emergency breathing device because she had some medical background, mm-hmm. but the head flight attendant didn't. Uh-huh. And this gentleman said, I need my CPAP. It's a life-saving device. Uh-huh. And he was booted from the plane. Why? Because it was her call and she felt that that life-saving device might need to be activated during an airplane setting, uh-huh. which is not the case. Most right. people need CPAPs when they just sleep. when they're sleeping. I used to be on one. And, you know, so you have to be cautious in the words you use when you're transporting medications like that or devices. Yeah. I've- because some people who are uneducated take it to a literal sense that they need it immediately life-saving and you could possibly be kicked off a plane. But the thing is, if you, I don't understand that because, I mean, I travel with my CPAP all the time. And right. I've never had someone do that. And even if you did say it was a life-saving device, why would they kick you off the plane in case you needed to use it? Most planes these days have the plug-in where you can use something like that if you did need it. Right. But neither here nor there. Yeah, so good advice. The flight attendant gave me the advice, like, if, you know, you talk to other people – you know, A, you don't have to be specific with medications. You say it's, it's medical. Yeah, or, I always say it's just this is a medical device. I'm allowed an extra bag for a medical device. That's it. Yeah, basically that's all you should say. Yeah, don't give them any more information to give them, have them give you trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, that 
the less information they have, usually the better off you are. Yes. Um, do you have any life hacks, things that uh, you do that make life easier for you? Uh, things I do. Um, so recently I've been um, focusing on meditating, uh-huh. um, which helps center my body. Um, I'm trying to get off of opioids, so I'm switching to medical cannabis. Which we are fond of here on this podcast. Right. And the thing that aggravates me the most is um, my medical cannabis costs around 150 to $200 a month. But when you're making, you know, a disability income, mm-hmm. you that's, know, that's a huge chunk where I would like to see the government stick, step in and say there is proven fact that cannabis yeah. helps with a variety of issues. It would also, I believe, put a halt in the academic we have with narcotics, yeah. um, which is very tragic. We tend to take, I mean, because the person I do this co the, that co-host this podcast with has to take daily opioids. And the whole opioid crisis, if you actually get in, kind of dig down into it right. a little bit, the, the crisis is heroin, not things like Vicodin and stuff like this. I mean, those things account for such a small, small, small percentage, okay. but they get lumped in with heroin and all these other things that are problems. And so they want to restrict access to all opi- opioids. I personally take my Vicodin as little as possible because of what it does to my digestive system. Same here. But, you know, with with my co-host, she has to take them daily. It's the only way she can function. Right. And so, you know, we try and educate people. It's, it, the crisis is really kind of a made-up crisis. We have, an, we have a heroin epidemic, not an opioid epidemic. There's a big distinction between the two things. Um, so you said you really like meditation. Yes. Um, one of the things you mentioned was acupuncture. Acupuncture for the pain um, worked for me um, for long. This is when I lived in Ohio. I've only lived here in the Bay Area for about nine years. Mm-hmm. And I've been battling this for 14. But again, it came down to cost because insurance would not pay for it. Yeah, It's an alternative medicine, um, even though it's been used for centuries. Right. Um there was really no place to get it for an affordable price. However, I recently found out that um, the what was known as the old magnet of San Francisco in the Castro now offers acupuncture, I believe, twice a month. Okay. So you can go there. Um, what is magnet? I'm not familiar with so, that. Um, Magnet, I believe they've changed their name, and I can't recall it off the top of my head. It is in um, a place for the LBGTQIA community to go to and have testing done, have um, somebody to talk to. There's a lot of resources there that you can tap into, whether you're dealing with something an autoimmune disease like I have Mm -hmm. or something more severe like HIV, Mm -hmm. um, AIDS, and they help educate along with give medical options. So it's it's sort of a medical clinic with also advice and such? Okay. They do testing there, and the good thing is it's um, done by donations, so the testing's free. Nice. Okay. 
Um, and it might be called Slate now, but I'm not 100% sure. I'll look it up and make sure that I link it when, I, when, yeah. I, when your podcast goes live. Um, so what kind of support do you have from family and friends um, you know, in your daily life? How, how does that work? How does your family and friends factor into things? So in the beginning, um, uh, it was my family, um, my mother, my um, father, and one friend I had that stuck with me the three months that I was in the hospital. Three months? Yes. The first time I wow. had this, I spent a total of three months straight in the hospital. When I came out of that, I still only had one real friend that was there by my side who would take me out in a wheelchair uh-huh. and be seen with me in public. Wow. Um, I'm not going to be... I come from a very small community, and I have to say that small community at the time was very closed-minded. Mm-hmm. My mother went in to check the mail at the mailbox, and she was approached by an individual after hearing I had an autoimmune disease and apologized to my mom for me having AIDS. Of course. And, you know, that's one thing. Another stigma is there are more autoimmune diseases than just HIV HIV and AIDS. And that's one thing I appreciate about this podcast is you're educating individuals about invisible disabilities and other things that they might not be familiar with. Right. Yeah, we've been trying to cover a lot of different ailments that people don't even know about. I mean, the last guy I interviewed had no kidneys. I didn't know that was even a thing that was possible. I listened to that, and (laughs) when you... I listened to that podcast, and just reading the the headline, I was like, I never knew that was humanly possible. Yeah. So that was, you know, for me, I'm very grateful for this platform that you've created. Thanks. Um, so that's how things were when you were back in Ohio, right? Back in Ohio. Yeah. Okay. So, and, um, basically that was when I was around 23 years old to 24. Um, I didn't come out into my family or anybody until I was 27 because of the small-mindedness of the community. So this person approached your mom when she found out you had an autoimmune disease and immediately assumed it was HIV, but you weren't even out yet. Correct. Oh, wow. Okay, that's even that's even more out, outrageous. Yeah. So basically, I, I had met my partner, um, which I've been with for going on nine years now. We met on the internet, and he flew out to see me for a long-distance relationship, and I introduced him to my family and basically my life because he I wanted him to see what he was getting into. Yeah. Because this is not easy for some individuals to take on. Somebody that you never know if they're going to be able to go out or if they're going to be stuck in bed. And then I flew here for two weeks, fell in love with the city, and we sat down and we had the conversation, and nine years later, I'm still here. And nice. he's still, um, I would say he, besides being a mama's boy, he's became my rock. Nice. Yeah, it's, 
it's interesting uh, when you get into a relationship when you already have a disability like this because, you know, how we, we actually did a podcast on the relationships and how do you start a new relationship when you have a disability right. because it is very different than – you know, oh, we have, we're going to go out. You have so many other things that have to factor into it. Like, you know, you said with, am I well enough to go out today? Yeah. You know, you can't just go out on a date on the spur of a moment. You know, oh, well, I, or you plan a date and then something comes up. My health is failing. I can't go out tonight. Correct. And so you've had to deal with all those. Yes. <clears throat> Did that put a strain on your relationship in the early days? Um, in the early days, I believe it was just normal relationship strain. Um, he had been a bachelor, lived on his own, mm-hmm. you know, his ever since he'd been 18. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, was a mama's boy. <laughs> um, but I think there's always, for first relationships, there's always growing pains and strains. Um, I think, yeah. you know, uh, first couple months of him seeing at times how debilitating it can be, it was a shock to him. Um, an adjustment, an adjustment, but I'm always been grateful because he's always constantly wanting to learn. And that's really important. Yeah. And he's one of those that he always is watching news and health podcasts to see what could be the next thing out there to help me. So he's really been an ally, a support system, a champion. And yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, it sounds like he's really a champion for you to, you know, not only help you on the day to day, but also be constantly out there looking for things to help out. That's that's cool. That's very, very, very nice when you don't have the energy, don't have the, you know, you're dealing with your own stuff internally and the pain and everything. So it's nice to have someone that's a champion for you like that. That's cool. Um, is there anything that you're afraid to tell people, even like the people closest to you, about your illness, about how you feel on a daily basis? No, as I state on my um, Facebook page and anything else, my life is an open book. And, you know, the doctors, Dr. Ronald Whistler at Ohio State University, who saved my life because my organs were shutting down when I finally went and seen him. You know, I was taken into the ER. Um, I've decided that if the Mayo Clinic and all that is going to have my blood and skin and tissue samples, then I need to be a voice for those um, and an advocate for those that feel that don't have a voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I step up to the plate and I put things out there. I record myself about new health crises I'm going through, mm-hmm. um, which recently um, I was diagnosed with having approximately 4,000 tumors and lesions from the phallus through the urethra, Yeesh. which is extremely painful. Um, I visited with my medical team uh, last week. Um, my immunologist, rheumatologist, and urologist, and that's the, a lot. That's a lot of ologists. Yes. <laughs> um, and in speaking with the urologist, he looked at me and said, "This is something I've never read about." Um, he also belongs to a group of twelve specialists around the world who 
who deal with the male anatomy and the body system. Mm -hmm. And he said, quite possibly, this is something that's never been recorded. Wow. Now, not the way you want to get famous. No, but I'm not surprised with, with all the health issues I've had with just the vasculitis alone. Um, I'm also a survivor of um, bacterial spinal meningitis. I was sorry. One of my biggest fears. (laughs) One of my biggest fears is 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 bacterial meningitis. So, so I did. I you know when doctors see me, like when I transferred from Ohio to see a family physician here, and I walked in, he's like, "You look perfectly healthy. Why are you here to see me?" And then I pull out my medical records, which are in two binders. And I'm like, read this. Um, so then even doctors, you know, are, I would say, are blind to some invisible disabilities. Oh, definitely, definitely. You know? Yeah, I actually spoke to my doctor yesterday about this because of some of the stuff I deal with. And I mentioned I was doing this podcast now. And I'm hoping that maybe I can actually get him on to uh, interview him about some of the things he deals with. Um, and and he talked about, you know, a lot of people, a lot of doctors don't believe you know, because they don't see this stuff that often. And you do have to worry about people that are just seeking drugs or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that's something we've all talked about before. Um, kind of on the, the last topic I said, you know, there's, there's things you don't tell people. Are you really open with, like, your partner and your the friends you have now about how what your daily pain level is? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because um, I know a lot of us try and hide how much we're hurting. We don't want to really burden people around us with like, oh, I'm really hurting today. Right. Um, but it sounds like you're kind of the flip side of that, that you're very out and open about how much the pain is. I am. And, um, and in doing that, I I feel more protected when I go places because of some things I might be carrying on me that, you know, so I don't get set up. I have a group of friends that I go out with mm-hmm. that know, you know, keep an eye on him. You know, they are always around him. I always make sure they have my back, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, yeah, my friends in San Francisco have also played a role. Um, my partner doesn't like to go out as much. She's more of a... a an, an enthusiastic reader and homebody. Um, he's a geek. He's I a hate geek. to okay. say that. His <laughs> it's fine. His hobby is web web developing, and that's actually his profession. So he could do it twenty four seven. I have one of those downstairs in the basement right yeah. now, so I understand. Um, do you feel that because you're just, I mean, you mentioned that you walked into the doctor's office and he's like, why are you seeing me? You know, you look fine. Right. Um, do you feel that because it's what you have is invisible, it changes how healthcare professionals treat you? Um, for the first couple of visits, yes. Okay. So basically until they kind of really get to know you and see, you know, the long history you have. Right. But because you do have so much documented, you don't really have as much trouble convincing them. Yes. Gotcha. And I and anybody that plans on moving from, like I said, I was in Ohio to California, even though we are in the digital age, I would say always ask for a print off of your medical records. Mm-hmm. And 
take those with you when you move. I agree with you. I'm just curious why you think you should have physical copies. Because what is so for me, um, the first time I went to the hospital here Mm -hmm. in San Francisco, um, it was during my first Pride they weren't able to get any of my records because of something going on in the technology. Mm-hmm. Their computers were down. Gotcha. Where I was able to pull out my folder and say, here's all my discharge notes so you have some idea of what I've been through, what I'm going through. I don't carry them with me everywhere I go. I do carry a sheet of paper that has my emergency information doctor's names, medications, and allergies. Right. Um, Even though that's on our iPhones now. Right. Or any smart devices. I always like to have a backup copy. Makes sense. In case technology fails. That's good. Um, Yeah, because, I mean, if it's, you know, after hours back there because we're on the West Coast, it could just be that, you know, they're already closed for the day. We can't get the records from them. So it is a good idea. That's, you know... I agree that it's a good idea to have a physical copy. Right. I was just curious what your rationale for that was in right. case it was different. Um, what do you think is your best coping mechanism? That you, how you cope with your pain and your problems, etc. My best coping mechanism is talking. Explain. Um, sometimes when I'm in a severe depression, which people who have chronic pain, you know, are, or find themselves depressed. Um, I have created a network of friends, both in real life, online, that I know that if I'm feeling down or, or out or anything, I have a list of people I can just pick up and call or FaceTime and just have them help me talk me through it. And and it's a way to take my mind off of the debilitation and move it to something that's going on in their life that I might be able to help with or, you know, because, yes, I'm disabled and I have a lot of medical stuff going on with my life, but I've been to VA hospitals and I know that I am not suffering near as bad as some other individual. There's always somebody else out there yeah. worse off than I am. So I don't try and cry and play crybaby, but I try to vocalize it and talk to other people. And I've even been accused on Facebook when I've posted things that, you know, are a little bit depressing that that's the only life I lead is one of somebody who's severely depressed. Wow. And... This was being said to me when I was in a. This was being said about me when I was in a bar, and I thought the person was my friend. And as he was talking to two other gentlemen, and I'm just sitting there drinking my beer, he's like, "Yeah, all he does is talk about depressing stuff. You know, his life's depressing." And I'm like, "Wow, you used to be one of those people that I would go to," and. You just showed your true colors, and the other patrons in the bar were shocked to find out that we had been friends. Yeah, sure. Because after he walked out, I'm like, just so you know, that's somebody that I counted on. Yeah, so there's 
There's a word for that, and I hate to be kind of quite so mean, but it's called shallow. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It, I've known people in the past as well that, you know, when I start having all my physical problems, we're just like, I'm just tired of hearing about it. And it's like, well, I'm sorry that my life is causing you problems, but you know, this is my reality. And I just, I'm kind of stunned that someone would, I guess I shouldn't be. I'm kind of stunned that someone would be so callous, especially did they, they know you were there. Oh, I was sitting maybe five feet behind them. But did they know you were there? Yeah. Wow. They see me walk in. So that that's even more callous. All right. That's kind of cool. Not. <laughs> right. Um, but then I have those friends that, you know, luckily for me, like I said, being the outwards open person, I know I have friends basically in all the time zones. So if I can't sleep and I feel like talking, I'll get on FaceTime and be like, hey, do you want to start a gaming together? You know, nice. something to take. And um, I've met people around the globe that are also disabled. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're like, oh, yeah, it's a relief for you and me. Because we have this combination. We're not diagnosed with the same medical stuff. But we're able to talk about similarities in our life. Of Someone just, who can relate. Yeah. And it's it's amazing what the Internet has done. And I would say if it wasn't for the internet and one of the first persons after I got out of the hospital, I met online um, in a game room. If it wasn't for that individual, I wouldn't be here because I had attempted suicide and she knew my phone numbers and stuff and got me help. Wow. Um, And if it wasn't for her, I would not be here. Yeah, that's because man. you know there's a there, everybody has a breaking point, and when you're 23 years old, you're you're told you have all these diagnoses. At the time, I was told I would only live a maximum of five years. So um, 28. Yeah, you know, um, I would never be able to have children because they had to do chemotherapy. And then after I was sent home, I was on chemotherapy drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, it felt like the whole world around me was just vanishing. Yeah. Like anything I'd seen in my future was never going to be possible. And one of those things I was very fearful for is I would never be in a relationship. Because there's very yeah. few individuals on this earth that want to take in somebody who is not financially productive in the relationship you know yeah and i'm blessed with the partner that i have that doesn't care about the finances as long as we have a roof over our head food in our stomach and can enjoy some life you know we're both happy yeah that seems to be a, a common theme that i've seen in a lot of people that you know they're very thankful for their partners that they have them because, you know, as hard as it is to live with this when, you know, we don't have a choice. Right. This is this is our reality. But our partners choose yes. to be part of this every day. All the ups and downs, all the hospital visits, all of that. And, you know, we're very thankful for them for doing so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Because without him, I'd still be living with mommy. <laughs> I love my mother, but that's just something I kind of see now at the age of 36. Six. Yeah. When we go back for visits, it's like I'm 13 again. And after two weeks, it's like, yeah, I got to get on an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you kind of sort of started to touch on this. But um, the next question I had for you is, what are you most fearful of or hopeful for for the future? So what I'm hopeful for is the laws will be changed where I can actually marry my partner. Um, right now, because I receive um, Medi-Cal oh. benefits, which this will be informative to people. If you are on Medi-Cal benefits... And, which I am now. Medi-Cal is basically California's version of Medicaid, Medicaid. right? Medicaid. Right, okay. Just for people that aren't, right. we have people listening to this that aren't here in California, so. Correct. So when I was diagnosed at the age of 23, I had enough credit hours and from working at the age of 13 till 23 to get full-fledged Social Security Disability. Okay. Which comes with a Medicare card. Right. Which pays for your um, 80% of your Bills, hospitalizations, doctor's right. visits. I was not able to pay for a secondary insurance back then, which is called Medigap. So mm -hmm. I took out, I was eligible for the Medicaid program. Okay. Medicaid, from the time you start, keeps a tab on you. So if my mother was to pass away and leave me any inheritance, the state of California would acquire that because I'm indebted to them. Right. Also, when I became disabled and had to sign on for Medicaid, they took every penny I had in savings. Mm -hmm. They also took my grave plot. Okay. So, Your grave plot? Yeah. All right. So, you know, when... When you're, if you feel like you're getting sick, um, some things I would do is, you know, as soon as you can before you sign any Medi-Cal or Medicaid paperwork, is transfer money to your family, along with stocks or anything you have, because if not, the government's going to take them. So the only course I have now is going. To get married with my partner would be to pay for a Medigap insurance policy uh -huh. along with a Part D, which is your prescription medication. Right. My prescriptions run about $200,000 a year. Holy mackerel. Um, so I'm, if I have to find some, you know, Part D that's going to be like, this is how much you'll pay, and we'll still cover the medications, you know. Yeah. So that's that's my future outlook. And what was the other question? Uh, that was what you're hopeful for, so what are you fearful of? Um, I'm fearful that I'm going to leave my partner too early. I'm not afraid of dying. I'm afraid that he'll be left alone. Okay. Yeah, that's a big distinction between being concerned yourself about dying and being concerned about how that event will affect those around you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Very big difference between the two. I'm not afraid of dying either, but yes, I, I worry too about leaving people behind. Yeah. You know, and we've talked about that and and I've strained, you know, if I'm taken, you can't stop living. You have to continue going. Yeah. You know, just not for me, but for yourself. You need to continue living your life and the what we've done is we've decided that we will be buried underneath trees. Okay. And then, so basically, our bodies will give life to the tree. Nice. So there would be a place that he could go visit, and I would always be there. So that's sort of what we've set up so that we're never truly gone. Mm-hmm. Instead of going to your standard cemetery and looking right. at a patch of grass. Yeah. Um, we've kind of gotten through a lot of the questions pretty fast. Um, is there anything else you'd mentioned? There's several other things you want to talk about. Yeah. Um, something that I find important and especially in the LBGTQ community is having, um, a power of attorney set up, having advanced directive and a will. Okay. Because there aren't, Families like mine, always, and my my partner's mother, Mm -hmm. who would allow us to step in and make the decisions for our partners or significant loved ones. Mm -hmm. Because without documentation or a marriage license, you have no power. Right. Um, And part of that is when I've seen the movie Bridegroom. Yeah, I've seen that. It's... Which... Really. Amazing movie, but also very depressing. Right. But that, the gentleman that, you know, lost his partner really did, you know, put in my mind that I need to have things set as a failsafe. Mm-hmm. You know, so far, like I said, I can sit here and say that nothing would most likely happen with my parents, nor his parents, but I I want to be 100% sure about that. Right. Um, so real quick for people that are listening that aren't familiar with this, the, the movie Bridegroom was a documentary about a gentleman, I believe they were in Texas. Yeah. No, they were, I think they were here in California. Oh, was it? And I, it's been a while since I've seen it. One so. was a photographer, um, and he went to shoot on top of a building and accidentally fell off the building. Right. And when he passed away... His family blocked his partner from having anything to do with the funeral, and they actually threatened him mm-hmm. severely if he was to ever show up at the funeral. Right, and didn't they also take like money that the fam- that the two of them yes. had together and stuff like this? Yeah. So it's a whole messy situation with banking accounts, yeah, property. So this is a kind of touching on a little bit of another issue, and I, I know it's only tangentially related to all of this, but. As an LGBT person, um, you don't have, even with though my, my husband and I are married, you know, it's always in the back of my mind that, you know, members of my family who don't approve could come in if something happened to me and say, well, California is a community property state, you know, half of that's his right. and try and take things away from my partner. And so this worries me because, you know, yeah, we have marriage equality now, but in with the current administration and some of the things they're trying to do to undermine that. That still is something that's currently on my mind is we could lose that. 
So the best advice I can give you. And so we, we are working on getting a lot of the extra paperwork done just because of that. Yeah. Um, you need to do wills. Yes. Um, I believe anybody, once you turn the age of 18 and you're able to sign a legal document, you should have a will. You should have these documents. Yeah. Um, you know, you if there's property or tangible things, then you set up a trust. Yeah. So you don't pay inheritance tax, like you said, with the current administration. We don't know what's going to happen. We've heard in the past what happened with Anna Libowitz. Yeah. She lost her partner. Yeah. The huge fee she had to pay. And I don't think that's that's right. Yeah, I agree. Um, kind of circling back around to the topic <laughs> at hand here, though. Yeah. Um, so I, I saw the live stream you did on Facebook. Yes. That talked about a lot of things that are going on with you right now. Right. Um, do you want to touch on any of that? Yeah. Um, like I stated, the the tumors in the phallus, um, which are hopefully going to be treated soon. Um, with that, I've it's increased the pain level. Um, anytime there is stretching of the phallus, which happens during REM sleep or anything like that, my tumors stretch. You can, I mean, th- we, we're, this is an adult podcast. You can say... So, penis, so anytime <laughs> you get an erection, which you do get, which men do get during REM sleep, uh-huh. um, it is like a fire knife blade is slicing me open. Ow. And the and only way for me to relieve that pain is to go and urinate. Uh-huh. And every time I do, I'm passing blood clots. Ow. So... Yeah, so... And I mean, you know, it's not even like you can control that because, like you said, it happens when you're sleeping. So you're also getting rudely awakened. Yes. So you're sleeping, you get rudely awakened, then you have to go to the bathroom to try and make it go away, and you're passing blood clots, which cannot be at all anything but agonizing. Yes. And then when the lesions are open, because you have... The urination that's going through it, which is salty, so... Oh, salt in a wound. Or if you've had Ow. spicy food, you know, Ow. it's it's making me more conscious of what I put in my body, but I'm one of those individuals who loves sriracha sauce, <laughs> and there are there's like one day a week that I will put aside that I know that the next day I'm going to be paying for this. Mm-hmm. But I'm not gonna let out. I'm not gonna let it control me. That's that's a really important thing is to you got to find that balance of you know living your life and having a life that you enjoy versus some of the. I mean, there are days when you know I have stuff that I know is probably gonna set off my dairy allergy because it's it's got just a itty bit like baked goods. They have, they have butter in them, but usually baking them kills off all the lactose and stuff. Right. But there's always just that little bit of chance that it's not completely gone. But it's like, oh, but it's so yummy. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, but um, I have to say, in the beginning, I thought this was a curse. And I kept asking, why me, why me? But throughout the journey, the people I've met who share similar 
disabilities or any form of disability mm-hmm. that I've created my, like you said, your own little group mm-hmm. that you can go to and reach out for help and know that they have your back. Definitely. And I think that's really important for somebody with an invisible disability or any other type of disability is trying to stay connected. Um, and it's hard. It's yeah, not. God, yeah. It's not an easy task. Well, I mean, it's it's when you have any kind of disability, but especially an invisible disability, and people invite you out, and you're like, "Oh yeah, I'd love to come out." And then you know, we already we had planned to do this podcast a different day, and then you were just too sick. Yeah, and so. This is a reality that, you know, and it takes finding the right friends who don't just immediately think, oh, you're a flake because you're canceling all the time, that they realize you have an issue here. This yeah. is not anything about you or them. This is, my body decided to act today and I can't do that. Yeah. Um, basically, for when I was in L.A. a couple weeks ago visiting my partner's mother, I had plans on seeing a bunch of my friends in LA and going and doing things and my body was just like no you're not leaving the house this week you're you're staying in the office you know maybe watching a little bit of tv or you're laying in bed Mm -hmm. because that's how severe the pain can be and where you can just hope that you can sleep so that you're not in pain But then you also have the possibility if you go to sleep that exactly <laughs> that you get woken up and it's it's a never ending cycle, um, and but I really don't know my life. I can't remember my life without pain. Yeah, and that's sort of and it's only been fourteen years and it's sad because even pain medications don't cover all the pain. They make it less brutal. Oh yeah. Some people who take who have never taken opioids think that, oh, you know, you're floating on a cloud, everything's <laughs> perfect. No, it's not that. God no. And then the adverse effects it has on your your body chemistry and your yeah. stomach. You know, people are like, let me try it. I'm like, no, no. You know, and for my anxiety issue, I take Xanax. <sighs> And everybody's like, oh, that just has to put you in the best place. And I'm like, no, because I'm taking it for a legitimate right. anxiety issue. Yeah, that's that's another thing that, that that we I don't think we've touched on here, but our next podcast is actually about the opioid crisis. So we're gonna that we're we're the next one where we um do one of our talk back and forth ones is gonna be on that. Um, and yeah, I get that all the time when I say, you know, I'm in a lot of pain today, I took a I took a Vicodin. Oh, you must be floating. No, it just means my pain went from a level 8 down to a level 2. Yeah. So it's like I'm still in pain, but it's manageable now. Right. You know, or, you know, God forbid the times that I've had to take two Vicodin, and they're like, oh, man, how can you function? I'm like, when you're actually in pain and you take a Vicodin, all it means is I can still function. It doesn't mean that I'm, woo, knocked out. Right. So, yeah, that's, that's a really important thing to get out there because so many people think that, Oh, you got these great pain meds and you're, you know, flying along on cloud nine and you're not. No. Um, we're kind of coming to the end here. I have, I only have one more question. Is there anything else that you want to say before we start to hit the wrap up on this? Um, basically I'm grateful there for this platform that you've created. Um, it's amazing for people like myself who happen chance we met on Facebook. Yeah. 
and you came to find out, found out that I had this. Um, but for people to speak up and talk more and to read the blog and listen to the podcast because it really is mind-opening. You know, like I said, we all have our stories. Mm -hmm. Some of them are medical and some of them might not be medical. For people who are in the military, you know, who have PTSD or something like that. Which, that is something I'm actually planning on exploring on a future podcast. You know, and... Um, Thanks for the plug. The reason I say that is because I was watching... I'm a huge um, reality show freak. And I was watching Survivor, and the gentleman had PTSD, and the bamboo was on fire and popping. And he had shell shock. Oh, wow. And I was grateful that he expressed it on the television of why he went and did what he did. Because my father himself served in Vietnam and had PTSD and was mm -hmm. very quiet. Where I know is a lot of those who served in that war are. Yes. And have every right to be quiet and not talk about it. But there are issues like PTSD out there that is an invisible yeah, disability. That's one I actually have as a, I have a, someone else that I've reached out to. That's my hope for my next interview is to interview someone who has PTSD and talk about how it's affected them. So right. that's, that's, you kind of give me a great plug. <laughs> um, so we always end on the same question. What's your favorite swear word? Frack. Frack. Battlestar Galactica. Yes. Okay. For people who don't know what that is, uh, Battlestar Galactica back in the seventies started it. And then the more recent one continued it as their version of the word. Fuck is frack. And it was that way they could get around saying it on, you know, network television and not get in trouble. Yes. And I used to say it a lot myself. I've kind of slipped back to the uh, more mundane version and just say fuck a lot. Right. <laughs> I will slip up in there, but I try and say frack. And um, when I'm feeling down, I'll just yell, Lord of Cobble, hear my prayer. Because, you know, I yes. draw instincts from TV shows, from... You know, the slightest thing can be a coping mechanism. You know, just sitting down and coloring in a book like your your kid again. You know, I do that. You know, and it just takes your mind off of Very whatever so. is bothering you. It doesn't have to be pain. It can just be, you know, you're feeling down and just some type of outlet. Very much so. I I I'm a personal. I personally swear by coloring books or coloring apps. I've got. Uh, coloring book app on my iPad here that I color in when I'm stressed out or depressed or whatever because I go through a lot of these same things you're talking about because um, when you're in so much pain sometimes you just need something to just take your mind away from where you're at right now mm. that is a really good easy one to do yes thank you very much for coming and and talking about what you have uh, and what you're dealing with on a daily basis on our podcast thank you for having me Thank you so much for listening to Invisible Not Broken. I hope you enjoyed that interview because I had a great time talking with Robbie. Next week, Monica and I will be talking about pain management. We'll be covering doctors, pharmacists, alternative therapies, and yes, even drugs. You'll get to hear about the various things the two of us have tried for managing our pain, and you'll get our take on the so-called opioid crisis. It was a very lively discussion, so I think you'll be pleased. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, tweet about us, share us with your friends. 
especially anyone who has an invisible illness or disability that you think would enjoy knowing that they're not alone in dealing with the issues we discuss. So until next week, be kind, be gentle, and be a badass.